Welcome to the next message from Encounter Church. For more information about our church, visit us online at EncounterPGH.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. All right, so we're going to move on in today's, uh, to today's message, uh, scripture study. Um, we are continuing our heroes and villains. Last week, we started our series with... Um, with a study of in Mary and uh, you know, what we're doing in this series is um, going through various stories in the Bible that are, but we're calling them stories uh, because they're, they're narratives that we see in scripture, but they're not just stories. Um, And the characters in those stories aren't just characters. They're us. Like the Bible is meant to be read from a reflection of, of who we are as people and we can see ourselves in their story and how God reveals himself to these people in this conversely how, or I should say, and how he mirror and the mirrors, how he relates to us. And so when we read the narrative of scripture, we're seeing the story of humanity and the themes that humanity goes through and how God responds to them and how we can know him. Uh, and so as we continue our series, Heroes and Villains, we're going to explore more lives of some of the people who were considered the best and the worst characters in the Bible and really find our place in them. And so the question I want to ask you and that we're asking ourselves is what might God say to us through their stories? And so last week we talked about Mary, the lady that we typically don't hear about very often unless it's Christmas time or if you're in a Catholic setting where you'll hear about her a lot. Um, And really last week, Mary's story, yeah, Claire, I'm talking to you. (laughs) No, just kidding. Uh, Trusting in God's perspective rather than our preferences and our circumstances. And that will actually lead us, you'll see at the end of today's teaching, about uh, today's message as well. There's a a link there, a little bit of a link, um, about trusting God's perspective rather than our preferences or even our circumstances. And that was what Mary's story was about. Well, today we're going to shift gears and talk about a villain in the Bible, and his name was Balaam. Balaam. But before we do, I want to ask you this question. How many of you have ever heard the name J. Robert Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer. All right. So two of us, two of us, uh, he is considered, okay, three of us and maybe others who are like, I'm not sure, but uh, he was considered the father of the atomic bomb, Oppenheimer. Uh, who quoted the famous, uh, you know, uh, story, uh, the line that said, I have become death, right? Um, And so uh, Oppenheimer was the one who created, who was a a part of the the Manhattan Project, and ultimately was a part of uh, this group that that brought uh, the atomic bomb. And then, of course, we know that in World War II, two of those bombs were dropped on uh, Japan and, uh, and countless deaths. Uh, took place there and really ushered in an era of nuclear proliferation. And, um, and we're still seeing the effects of that today. We just, just in the news this week, the Open Skies Initiative, I think, is, uh, is being taken down or whatever, which um, is part of, was put in place to keep nuclear weapons from uh, being shot across, you know, the skies and things like that. And um, the question I would ask you is, why do we know his name? Why do we know his name? It's, uh, it's, not, not just the history of what he did, but the reason that we know Oppenheimer's name is because the effect that he had on history, right? So the history of what took place, but we know the name Oppenheimer because of the effect that it had on the world that we live in. 
Um, and there is this there is this storytelling tradition that we see in humanity that's been happening since the dawn of time. That when things happen that are significant, we tell them in stories to our children, to other people, centuries of passing down and important stories in order to teach lessons. There's this shared history that we all have as human beings, this narrative that, that comes up. Um, and so as we learn lessons and as people um, engage in important moments in history, we take those stories and then we pass them down as reminders from our past to be used in the present. And this can be known, either known for the effect on one individual or sometimes the effect that a scenario or a situation or a person has had on um, the entire society. And oftentimes we use these stories as warnings, right? Warnings for future generations to not fall into the same mistakes. So here are some examples that I was thinking of this week of stories that we tell our children that we have been told to teach us about the effects and the warnings of them. An example would be the Great Depression right? Everybody here has heard about the Great Depression. And the reason is because of the effect that it had, but also what plunged us into it and the effects that it had for generations and how we can uh, avoid those types of, of things. My grandmother, um, God rest her soul, was, was lived through the Great Depression. She was born in 1922 and the effects of it lasted into the 30s. And so she grew up as a child in the Great Depression. And I've heard stories from those people who have come from that generation who lived through it. And you can see the effect that it had on their financials. They were the ones who didn't really trust the banks. They were the ones who would put their money under the mattresses, right? Like that, that story that we hear, like the joke or the anecdotal concept of putting your money under the mattress, that came from this time in our society, you know? The stock market crash, like that's an example of it. More recent than that, not too far after that, though, was World War II and the Holocaust. Like we've heard stories and we keep saying never forget, right, the story of the Holocaust. Why? So that we don't repeat the mistakes that took place during that time. And, and so now we actually see the effects of that in our society today, where people are, are denying that the Holocaust existed, right? And we're seeing that there, there are these, these, um, these, these vestiges of that time of, of racism, neo-Nazism, or alt-right types of things that are coming out to where we're starting to see now the effects of that in our society. And people are going back to say, we can't allow our society to, to forget these lessons. So you see the importance of the storytelling and the, and the, the words. It just actually at the Pitt campus, before we went uh, into the, into the, the lockdown, um, out in the on campus grounds at the cathedral, they put up um, like cardboard cutouts of, of the faces of individuals who uh, were survivors of the Holocaust for this very reason, so that you would walk by and see their faces and remember what happened? You see the storytelling. Other examples of Adolf Hitler or Richard Nixon is another example. Like everybody knows Nixon, and and like you may have heard his story because of what he did and the effect that he had on our presidency and the on, on that in the spiritual world and like the church world. How many of you have ever heard of the name Jimmy Swaggart? 
a couple of us have heard of him. He was uh, like a charismatic or, or Pentecostal pastor who fell into, into a moral, uh, moral failure. Or Jim Baker was another example who went into extortion. Like we hear these names, right? Al Capone is another one. Like these, these names. We're even just ridiculous people in our own lives. A cousin Eddie from, you know, the, from like the, the National Lampoon's movies or, or your actual cousin who you know is like a, a screw up or, or a mess up or like we tell stories of, of lessons that we've learned. Don't be like this person. Don't do that thing. Like it could be the used car salesman. It could be corrupt politicians. It could be celebrity scandals. These, these things that happen that have an effect on that person negatively or have an effect on our society overall, we tell the story to our kids or to our friends to warn us about the lessons that we can learn so that we don't become those people, the powerful examples to learn from. And today we're going to learn about a man named Balaam from the Bible. He's in the Old Testament. And I asked you guys last week, how many of you have heard of him? And I think almost everybody said no. Like, no idea who this guy is, but he was infamous to the Jewish people infamous to the Jewish people. They grew up hearing his name. So like we've grown up hearing about Richard Nixon and Adolf Hitler, for example. Balaam was a name that any Jewish person would know. And they used it as a warning against spiritual corruption, against false prophets. And he is actually mentioned all throughout the Bible, not just in the Old Testament. He's mentioned in Numbers. He's mentioned in Deuteronomy. He's mentioned in Joshua. He's mentioned in Nehemiah, Micah, 2 Peter, Jude, and Revelation. Like the name Balaam is all over the Bible, and yet none of us have really even heard of him. And it's telling his story and instructing us to not be like him, and as well as to be on guard against people like him and their influence. Everyone then knew the name Balaam, and they didn't need much explanation. It was ingrained into their social and spiritual identity. But we don't know who he is. To us, it's not a name that we understand, and so we need some backstory to understand who he is. So first, we're going to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 to learn about Balaam and see why he's important. Why does it matter to us? Second Peter chapter two, verses 15 and 16. And then we're going to spend a lot of time in numbers today, numbers 22. So second Peter two, verses 15 and 16, it says this, this is Peter here talking about false prophets. It says, they have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of wickedness but received a rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the, restrained the prophet's madness. Okay, let's just stop here for a second. I love that like, we're like, what? I'm sorry, a donkey, right? We don't understand it, but to them they're like, yeah. Yeah, I know the story, <laughs> you know? Like, you heard that right, a talking donkey. So we're gonna rewind here real quick to, to Numbers 22, right? They have gone astray, by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, who loved the wages of wickedness, but he received a rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So we're going to rewind now to, prop, to Numbers chapter 22 to learn about Balaam and to discover why he is one of the most villainous individuals in the Bible that you've never heard of. 
Numbers chapter 22. And while you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of context for what we're doing and what we're reading here. The Israelites have finally made it to the promised land. So that's the story of like the first half of the Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? So they, like they're rescued from Egypt by, by God. Like Moses leads them out. They go through the, I don't know if you knew this, by the way, that they get to the promised land first and then they have doubt and, and fear that God's not gonna actually let them in. So then, then God says, fine, if you're not gonna believe me, you guys are gonna wander in the wilderness for a while and then this generation will die off and you'll come back and then you get to go in. So this is the second time they get there, right? So they finally make it to the plains of Moab and they're across the, the right across the Jordan River and they can see across the river into the promised land and they see Jericho there and they're ready, they're excited. They're about to enter into the land that God has promised them after 40 years of wandering. And so they're camped in the plains of Moab, which is modern day Jordan. So the country of Jordan is where they're at right now, near the Jordan River that separates them from Jericho, which is the first city in the promised land, which is modern day Israel. And along the way, all throughout this time, anytime they would come across a nation that was opposed to them because God was with them, they would overpower that nation. They would be able to be, they, they would defeat them through God's ability in a variety of ways, but never, uh, unless they were in sin and God like taught them a lesson, but anytime that some nation rose up against them as they were on their way, they always overpowered that nation. They, they were able to take care of that and no one stood in their way because God was leading them. So they arrive in Moab, finally about to enter into the promised land and the king of Moab, his name is Balak. B-A-L-A-K, sees this horde of humanity down in the plains, and he is afraid because he's worried that his nation is going to suffer the same fate as all of the other ones, right? That they're going to be overrun and overpowered by the Israelites. So he seeks out to hire an apparently famous prophet or soothsayer, like a diviner, which was very common in this time, and his name was Balaam who lived in a place called Pethor, which was in Syria, near Turkey, okay? So imagine for a second how famous someone has to be when you don't have telephones or you don't have the internet, you don't have phone books, all you have is word of mouth and experience, right? So you are hundreds of miles away on camelback or on foot or on horseback, and you hear about someone who could help me that could seek the face of God and, and pronounce a curse on this nation. You'd have to be pretty famous, right? So they hear about this man named Balaam, who lived in Syria near Turkey, and they, they, Balak wants to hire him to place a curse on the people of Israel. Now here's what you need to understand, is that curses and blessings were considered irrevocable at this time. So if you guys remember back, if you've ever heard the story of Jacob and Esau, right? Esau steals Jacob, no, Jacob steals Esau's um, blessing, right? Because Jacob, Esau was the firstborn. And so he was the one who was supposed to get the blessing of the father as the firstborn. But Jacob steals it by tricking his father in deception, right? He tr tricks him. And he receives the blessing. And Esau says, but father, give me my blessing. And Jacob says, or uh, Isaac, his father says, I can't change it. I've already delivered the blessing. There was this belief in this spiritual reality at the time that blessings and curses were irrevocable. So what happened was, is that Balak was like, if I could just get this, this man Balaam to put a curse on the people of Israel, then there's no way they'll be able to defeat me and I'll be able to defeat them, therefore protecting my nation, right? So that's what he does. 
So he, he goes up there and he sends a, a group of people, uh, his messengers to Balaam. And this is where we're going to pick up Numbers chapter 22, verse 7. So it says, the elders of Moab and Midian departed with fees for divination. So apparently there was like a standard rate that was applied for diviners with the fees for divination in hand. And they came to Balaam and reported Balak's words to him. We want you to place a curse on this nation that they're like overrunning every nation. We need you to put a curse on them. Verse 12, then God said to Balaam, so he's so, okay. So Balaam is like a pagan soothsayer and he apparently is well-versed in, in, in who God is, the God Yahweh, which was the name of God. Um, and he seeks out God's opinion. So he goes, all right, I hear what you want. Let me go talk to the God, this God of Israel, God Yahweh. Let me go talk. This is so weird because he's a pagan. He's not an Israelite. He's not a, a prophet of God, but apparently he knows enough about how to connect in the spirit realm that the Bible says he goes and seeks God's opinion on the matter. So verse 12 says, then God said to Balaam, you are not to go with them. Do not go back to Moab. You are not to curse this people for they are blessed. My blessing upon them is irrevocable no matter what you say, Balaam. So Balak, so Balaam goes back and tells Balak's messengers, I can't, I can't go with you. The God of Israel, Yahweh says, I can't go. And he says that I can't say anything other than a blessing to them. So they can return to Balak. And Balak says, no, 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 go get this guy. So he sends him back again, but this time he sends him with great riches, with tons of money, and promises him power. Okay? So Balaam goes, well, all right, let me see what God's opinion is this time, right? Let me seek it again. How many times have we done this? How many times have we gone back to God a second time asking for something when God has clearly told us no about something? This is a side note. So Balaam seeks God again, right? He goes back. But this time we see his corrupted heart is revealed a little bit, right? And God, knowing Balaam, is only going to do what he wants, right? Balaam is, is, is like tempted now by the money and by the power and the position and the authority that he's being promised by Balak. So Balaam goes and says, God, you know, like, like can I go? Like, what do you think, right? So he goes and God says, fine. Go ahead and go, but do not say anything more than I tell you to say. So Balaam goes, okay. He saddles up his donkey and goes with the officials back to Moab. And this is where the meat of our story comes in here. In verse 22, but God was incensed that Balaam was going because he knows his heart. And the angel of the Lord took his stand on the path to oppose him. And Balaam was riding his donkey, and his two servants were with him. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing on the path with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the path and went into the field. So Balaam hit her to return her to the path. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow passage between the vineyards with a stone wall on either side. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord and pressed herself against the wall, squeezing Balaam's foot against it. So he hit her once again, this poor donkey. The angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she crouched under, down under Balaam. So he became furious and beat the donkey with his stick. Then the angel of the Lord, the angel, I'm oh, sorry, then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and she asked Balaam, hey, 
what have I done to you that you've beaten me these three times? What a bizarre story that we're reading here, that God opens the mouth of a donkey and it gives it the ability to speak to it. And the donkey turns around like any of us would be like, what is your problem? Why are you beating me? And Balaam answered the donkey, apparently like, you know, like, like part of like the donkey opening its mouth, like part of the, the ability and the power to do that also calmed Balaam's like nerves enough to be able to like converse, right? So Balaam answered the donkey, you made me look like a fool because he wasn't just riding by himself. He was riding with the, with the members of the household of Balak. So the political, he's like worried about what all the people who are with him see and think, right? So you made me look like a fool. If I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you now, donkey. But the donkey said, am I not the same donkey that you have ridden all of your life until today? Have I ever treated you this way before? And Balaam goes, well, no. So then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a drawn sword in his hand. And Balaam got off the donkey, knelt low, and bowed in worship on his face. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Look, I came out to oppose you because I consider what you are doing to be evil. All right, so this is, this is something to just kind of put away there. I consider what you are doing to be evil. The donkey saw me and he turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away from me, I would have killed you by now and let her live. So Balaam said to the Lord, I have sinned for I did not know that you were standing in the path to confront me. And now here's another piece. If it is evil in your sight, I will go back. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, now go ahead, go with the men, but you were to only say what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. All right. So, there's more of the story we're going to get to here in a minute, but I want to kind of pause here and just give you a little bit here. So Balaam appears remorseful, right? I have sinned, but he's not. He just got caught, right? In that moment, he was, he was beating up his donkey because he was embarrassed by what he was seeing and what was happening to him. And he was worried of what by his reputation was going to be soiled because he's with this representative of those who have hired him. And the only reason that he is remorseful anyway is because now he's worried that his life is threatened. He's seeing an angel of the Lord with a sword drawn, telling him that he's about to be killed because of what he is doing, right? And then he says to him, if it's evil in your sight, like it's not evil in my sight, it's only evil in your sight. So if you say it's wrong, well, then I'll turn back. But it reveals his true heart. He's not on this mission to be a representative of God. He's on a mission so that he could do what he wants to do. He's not a follower of God. He's not a true prophet. He sees the power that he can wield like magic. He wants to use the power of God for his own gain so that he can get as much out of this as he can before he and go as far as he possibly can. He wants to be a part of the benefits of being a representative of God, but not the true follower. This is like people who profess to be Christians for, for the, the goodness that comes for it. The, from, there is a Christian, as long as it suits them and the things are good, but they walk away from their faith as soon as things get difficult or it requires change. This happens all the time. They're not serving God. They're really serving themselves. So Balaam goes along with those men and he meets up with Balak and tries three times three times to curse God's people. But each time 
God puts words of blessing in his mouth. And each time he does it, God takes control of Balaam, his words. And each time he does it, his, the words are more pronounced. They're more emphatic than the last one until Balaam finally declares that Israel will destroy its enemies and Balak and his allies will be defeated. So three times, actually four total, Balaam tries to stay out on this mountain over top of the, the people of Israel, kind of like... Um, like uh, like uh, Saruman in Lord of the Rings, where he's like on the top of the mountain, he's like casting this big spell. He's like looking over at them, like, and he's trying to pronounce this this curse. But God puts words of blessing, and He blesses the nation of Israel four separate times. And so we feel like this is the end of the story, right? Like, haha, your story was foiled. Like, Balak's plans are are done. Like, like he's going to be defeated, and Balaam just goes back, and it's no big deal. And God took care of it, right? Israel's victorious, and Balaam goes home having made a mistake, but ends up blessing God's people. No big deal, right? What's the big deal with all of this? Why is Balaam's name? known by everyone in Israel, because at this point, no one in Israel even knew Balaam was present, right? Why does God warn us about Balaam all throughout the Bible? Well, it's because up until this point, we've seen shadows of Balaam's heart and his true intentions, but we're about to see his true effect, which is what I'm calling the Balaam effect. Let's go on now to Numbers 25 and see what happens to the people of Israel. Numbers 25, verse 1. While Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, so they were just kind of hanging out, preparing to move across into the promised land, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. I'm sorry, what? You're about to go into the place that God has set for you as your destiny, and now you're going to do this. And they, they began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate. And they bowed in worship to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger uh, burned against them. Okay, wait a minute. What happened here? What happened? They were literally about to enter into the promised land to fulfill their destiny. And if you know anything about the, the Jewish people and have read up to this point, they have been forbidden to intermarry or to intermingle with foreign nations, especially their gods. But somehow, at the last moment, they fall into this great tragedy in a seemingly random coincidence. But is it? Because it's not. And so we actually have to wait six more chapters later to discover the true source of the plot. So, so we see Balaam try to curse God's people, and God's people are blessed instead. So Balaam leaves right? And somehow in between, the next time we see them, they are invited by the women of Moab and they create this big festival and it becomes this like apparently like a big orgy and they, and they just kind of like intermingle and somehow they're like, forget about God. And we're like, what the heck? And this crazy dramatic turn of events and this plague comes upon the people of Israel and 25,000 people die. It's crazy, right? And then we get to Numbers 31. Numbers chapter 31, verse 13. Moses the priest Eliezer and the leaders of the community went to meet outside of the camp. But Moses became furious with the officers, the commanders of thousands of commanders of hundreds who were returning from the military campaign. Why? Why were they like, why were they in a military campaign? And he says, have you let every female live? He asked them. 
yet they are the ones who at Balaam's advice, they are the ones who at Balaam's advice incited the Israelites to unfaithfulness against the Lord in the Peor incident so that the plague came against the Lord's community. So apparently at some point, probably in frustration, in like a, in a second attempt, or like either in a frustration that Balaam was walking away, couldn't do what he was paid to do, maybe he lost his money. I'm sure that Balak probably did not pay Balaam, right? So either in frustration or in a second attempt from Balak later on to try to get Balaam to come back and do it again, Balaam apparently creates a new strategy and gave advice on how to trap the people of Israel. He must have known about their tendency to be tempted by the lusts of the flesh, and so instead recommended a military strategy that he set up by enticing them with women. And remember months ago we talked about those raisin cakes? You remember that, how we said that the, how they love their raisin cakes? This is an example. There's another passage of scripture that talks about during this time in this festival, they, they were, you know, engaging in all this prostituting with each other, with all the women, all that stuff and eating raisin cakes. <laughs> so you can see how it all ties, right? Like, like they were in this spot, in this moment, right? It wasn't a coincidence. They were like, they were set up, they were ready to go. And all of a sudden this group, like, like a traveling band, like a circus or something, I imagine like comes in and says, Hey, we're setting up a party. And these ladies walk out wearing their short shorts or whatever, you know, and they're like, Hey guys, you want to have some fun? Like, I don't know. I imagine that's how ladies talk. I don't know. Um, and they, they, they tempt them and they, the entire nation of Israel falls into this. And it turns out that Balaam was like, if we can't defeat them by the military, we can corrupt them from within. We see it in movies all the time, you know, like it's like a Sun Tzu art of war kind of thing, right? Like, like just infiltrate in a weak spot and this is their weak spot. And so their unfaithfulness caused a great plague throughout the camp and wiped out 24,000 people. So what this did actually was it drew them into a war with Midian, which is up in like the Syrian area, the region where Balaam came from. They're like, Balaam did this. So they send up their army up there and they said, wipe them out, right? And what this did, not only it caused them more, but it also caused them delay into their destiny because now they had to wait even longer before they could cross into the Jordan. And it had a devastating effect on their social identity. And it wanted to make sure that no one ever forgot about it. So why was Balaam known about? Because somehow they knew, word intelligence somehow came out that Balaam was the one who set this trap for them. And so 24,000 people died, generation of, of, of family members wiped out, right? Like, think about it. Now it's forever looking back that, that they had, um, you know, that, that they were about to move into the promised land and uncle so-and-so or grandfather so-and-so didn't get to go with us because, because they were engaged in this. And even maybe indirectly, like maybe some people were part of the plague who, who didn't even engage in it. We don't know that. Like, and so it became this moment, this defining space, like the Holocaust would be, or like these moments where they know, they recognize that this was a failure. And so they were going to make sure that they would never forget, and they would use Balaam's name throughout history to teach them. So what do we, what do we learn really from all of this? The story of Balaam has become a warning of how easily we can all be led astray by our desires. So let's go back to 2 Peter, where we started and where we first began. And I actually want to go back to the very beginning of 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 1. 
he says this, there were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in destructive heresies, 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 even denying the master who brought them, master as in Jesus, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of the truth will be maligned because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. And then we go down to 15 where we started. They have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of wickedness, but received a rebuke for his lawlessness, a speechless donkey with a human voice who restrained the prophet's madness. What he's talking about here is false prophets, false teachers, false teachings, false theology, compromised faith, immature believers who are willing to hear something that they want to hear instead of the truth of Scripture, or are willing to allow themselves to be enticed or led away because something is convenient or something is easy or something is simple or it feels good or it's the, the society and the pressure on the world around them makes them feel bad because they believe something that Scripture teaches even though the world says that it's, it's antiquated or whatever. Like that's what he's talking about. That cultural influence is strong. It is strong. The Jewish people had to learn this lesson the hard way. They had a long history of compromise over and over and over again in Scripture. We see the story of humanity, but also the story of the Jewish people, that they come back to God, and then after a while, they forget. They live a life of compromise. They start intermingling with the other gods and the other habits and practices of the nations around them, and then they completely fall away, and then they fall into destruction, and they repent and then they come back, and then God heals them, and the cycle repeats over and over again. And then we'd like to think that when Jesus came, everything changed and stopped, but it didn't. Because just because Jesus comes and gives us freedom, we each individuals do the same thing, right? We're enticed by sin. We're enticed by our struggles, by our temptation. We're enticed by the things in the world that we know we shouldn't be engaging in, but it's fun or it's easy or it's, or it's, or it's, um, it's, 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 it's like we want to be a part of it. And so we compromise. We go, oh, it's fine. I mean, like, it's not a big deal. Like, I'll just go out and get one night and get drunk one night. Like, what's the big deal? Like, or like, oh, like, who cares? Like, I'm just going to hook up with this guy one time or this lady one time because like, like, I mean, it's not a big deal. Like, I'm not going to become a promiscuous person. Like, what does it matter? Right? Like, and then we get involved in these little moments, these little things, and then it becomes easier to do it. And before we know, we look back at ourselves and we are different people. Or we look back at our theology and we once held so tightly to a belief about something and we've allowed ourselves to be compromised over time. Peter is warning Christians about how easily we can be led astray. The temptation to think like everyone else is so strong. Like to just look out there and be like, how could, how could every person that I know be wrong? How can all the good people that I know be wrong? How could that be? It's so much easier to go with the flow than against the current of popular opinion or convenient theology. You know, like there's a lot of churches that 
stay away from hard topics because they don't want to tell their people like that the scriptures teach something that is unpopular or is un uncomfortable. But it's so easy to just kind of like mold your theology around like what People Magazine says or like what BuzzFeed says because it feels better to kind of like try to manipulate things and make it fit into your scriptures than it does to say this is what scripture says and I have to make everything about my life aligned to that regardless of what my coworkers or my neighbors or my friends or my boyfriend think. And it comes in a lot of forms. The New Testament talks about a very concerted effort by Satan and his demons to deceive people and to pull them away from God. And we don't like to talk about that. I, even myself, I don't like to talk about Satan or talk about demons because it sounds so spiritual, right? It sounds so like unbelievable, but we believe in a, in a God who is supernatural, right? Is it so far fetched to believe that there are forces of evil that are seeking to destroy us and to deceive us. And scripture talks about it. The New Testament talks about it over and over and over again. The powers of darkness, the principalities and powers of the air, the spirit realm that are seeking to deceive us and to get us away from God, from his truth and his light. And it comes in many forms, but the erosion of truth is a powerful weapon that is being wielded against us. And so I want to finish with this. In an era of fake news and an era of personal truth, like individualized truth, my truth. I've heard that like several times this week, right? Like my truth, my personal truth, right? Like that's the world that we live in. In an era where everyone has what's truth is what's true for them, in the era of, of fake news, which is really code in my, my world, in this sermon, not for like what our president says is fake news, but for the, for the concept, it's so difficult to know what website is telling you the truth, what article you're reading is true, and what's in fiction or what's not, like what's being an agenda. What's, like in the era that we live in, as Christians particularly, if they we're not any less susceptible to this, even in, in the Christian world, I'm not just talking about politics, but in, in your own church, there are pastors or leaders who rise up or people who write books. Like Rob Bell was a great example of this. If you've ever read any of Rob Bell's books, Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins, right? Which essentially erases the concept of hell and talks about um, how instead everyone will eventually be saved. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't read Rob Bell's books. What I am saying is that you can't take everything that everyone says as gospel truth. This is what Peter said. Peter said that there will be people who will come along who will tell you stories, who will say things that sound good and they make sense in your heart, but they will deny the master's teachings even in their own teachings, okay? So what I'm saying to you is, is that we have to be people who take responsibility as Christians, specifically relating, I'm trying to cast a scope here, wide of like all things, but, but specifically if you hear nothing else, the scope of what I'm saying is as Christians, when you hear something about your faith, we have to take the responsibility to find the truth and hold on to it. And there are three things that I want to tell you about. That I, that the ways that we need to do it. And it's this, number one, you need to go to the source. I want you to be educated. 
Absolutely. Read articles, read books, go to school, get master's degrees, get doctorate degrees, learn about the world, learn about them. But the Bible must be the foundation. It has to be the foundation. You can't, you cannot, as a, as a Christian, get your value system from anywhere else other than God's word. It has to be. So absolutely, be educated. I'm not telling you to, to be like those people who, who say, no, I'm not going to read anything but the King James Bible. That doesn't even make sense. If it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it was good enough for me. That's not even true. I have seen people say that. The King James Version Bible was written in the 1600s. Okay, so let's just be educated, but go to the source, and the Bible must be the foundation. Number two, fact check. Fact check. And when we're talking, again, in the scope here, all right, the scope of in a church setting, in a Christian setting, in a spiritual setting about spiritual truths, okay, biblical values, when I say fact check, I mean this. Listen to your pastor, but study for yourself. Listen to your pastor. I'm not saying, I'm not telling you truth, but many of pastors who are better than me have gone astray and have led their congregations down paths that have been dangerous and have led them down the way of Balaam. We just finished a show about a cult. Like, like it's so easy to, to take someone that you trust and that loves you, or at least appears to love you, and appears to have your best interests in mind, and to hear what they say, and then to trust them. But you're not diving in yourself. You're not studying yourself. You're not reading scripture. You're not reading books on the topics. You're not doing like commentary study or word studies. You're not doing those things. So when I say to you, hey, the Greek word for this means that, you just take my word for it. And while I definitely appreciate a certain level of trust that goes with it, because I do want that, and hopefully I have earned that. But at the same time, you don't know. If you're not doing any of this study on your own, if you're not doing any kind of fact-checking, you have absolutely no way of knowing whether or not I'm lying to you. If I have been deluded myself, and I am leading you, even unintentionally, down a path that Balaam set for the Israelite people. So one... Go to the source, be educated, but the Bible must be your foundation. Number two, you have to fact check. If you hear your pastor say something, maybe your devotions for that week should be doing, reading those scriptures yourself and studying things on them. Go out to the internet and read about it. Like get some books or get studies. I'm happy to, to recommend resources for you so where you can scholarly individuals who've done years of study and language studies and, and manuscript studies and all of these kinds of things to really see what the truth is about these spaces. Fact check. And number three, ask questions. Ask questions. Go to the source, fact check, and ask questions. I want you to have faith. Absolutely. But you hear some of the things that we read about or that we hear about in church or in scriptures and worship songs and podcasts, they're hard to hear. They're difficult to hear. They, they challenge our faith. So I want you to have faith. I want you to call up faith. That's first and, for, first and foremost, we are called to be people of faith. So just because you hear something you don't understand, or just because you hear something that is difficult or goes against your value system that you have in place, doesn't mean it's wrong, but it means that you need to think critically 
in that space. It's okay to ask questions. Pastor Jared or Bible or God or podcast author or, you know, website, you know, whatever it is you're reading that's challenging you. Like, okay, I want to believe this, but what does that mean? I thought that God was this way. Why would God do that? Okay. I asked that question this week. Why did Balaam get angry? Why did God get angry at Balaam? Why did God get angry at Balaam when he told him to go? And I had to dig harder and dig deeper into it, right? Because Balaam asked him and God said, don't go. But then Balaam went back and God said, it's fine, go ahead and go. So why would God be so angry and put an angel with a sword in his way who's going to kill him? And then as I read further and I looked into the study and I read commentaries as I was thinking critically, asking questions, doing the fact checking, I went into what I found was that it actually revealed Balaam's heart. And that God knew that Balaam was going to do what he wanted to do anyway. And so God was going to allow it. And that's not that different from what we are. God oftentimes will give us an answer that we want and let us reap the consequences of it because he's a father figure who allows his children to make their own decisions. So, so that's just, just like a practical example of as I was studying this week and working through this sermon series, this message here, I tried to apply these things. So as Christians, and it's just like kind of a vague, more nebulous sermon, I understand it, because like you're looking around at, at the Zoom meeting and thinking, well, who here is like a false prophet? Like who here is, is going to lead me astray away from the faith? You know, but like I mentioned, it could be a pastor that you, that you respect. It could be another friend's church. It could be a friend who's kind of a Christian, but isn't really a Christian. You know, it could be somebody who's, who grew up in the church and knows all the right answers, but doesn't really believe that God is the ultimate authority and doesn't allow him to transform their heart. And so they continue to. So they're telling you, oh, it's not a big deal. Go ahead. It's fine. Go ahead and sleep with that person or go ahead and do this. Or what does it matter? Like they espouse the name of God like Balaam did, but they're not actually followers. It could be a book that you're reading from a Christian bookstore or from a popular Christian author who maybe is not nearly as fact-checked as he should be or she should be. That's what it means. And this was happening not just today. It's happening all the way back 2,000 years ago with the Christian church where it was first coming up. And there's tons of scripture talking about uh, the, the wolves. Jesus even said it, beware of the wolves in sheep's clothing. Like, this is something that we must deal with. And you know, nobody wants to hear about it. Nobody wants to hear a sermon about like, be warned, be wary. Because I'm at the risk of sounding like that weirdo guy on the street corner with, the, uh, with like on the soapbox and like the microphone yelling at people. I don't want to be that guy. But I do, I have a responsibility to the sheep of this flock, if you will, the kids in this family to tell you that there are warnings all over the Bible about, about being like led astray by people who have that silver tongue. Like it's so much easier to just say, like to just do what the world is doing, to do what other people are doing when it comes against your, your belief system. And, to, and it's so tempting to just go, well, like I can, I can make it work. Like you find a way to like piece together scriptures, like to just sort of, and maybe it didn't mean that, you know, maybe like 500 years ago that somebody changed this word. And that sometimes is true, but you have to do the digging and the, and the work 
to make sure that you can say, as a follower of Christ, I have done my homework so that I know I am not being led astray. So that it's your belief system and your value system and your faith, not mine, not the author of the book who you know, wrote something and now all of a sudden you believe us in a different way. And I am just as guilty as anyone else is. I have done this to where I read a book or I read an article about something that maybe I'm on the fence on, and then I read it, and I haven't gone deeper to like study or to do a little bit more fact-checking, and I make that value or that belief mine now. And that's dangerous. We have to be people that say, I hear something, that's interesting, and I, 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 I resonate with that, but now I have some work to do before I, I, before I sign my name on that thing. You understand what I'm saying? That's the responsibility you have. And that's what Peter is saying here. So I'll finish with this. Balaam's story is a warning to stay the course when it is easier to detour. Balaam's story is a warning to stay the course when it is easier to take the detour. And that can mean a lot of different things. It could be a choice that you're making where you feel like you know this is right or you know this is wrong. And I'm either, I should or shouldn't do this thing. And you're tempted to make a compromise. It could be a belief. It could be society is shifting in a direction that traditionally this belief was, and now it's shifting over here. And, and even churches are moving into a direction. And so it's easier to say, well, maybe they're right. You know, maybe we're being antiquated. Maybe we're, and, and I'm not talking about one specific thing, because I think the, the thought process is you're probably thinking, oh, Pastor Jared's talking about this topic. And I'm not. I'm talking about it could be any topic. Just 30 years ago, like Christians in some circles weren't supposed to go to the movie theater because they thought it was wrong like to be associated with those things. There are churches out there who still don't believe that alcohol should be consumed at any, at any time. There are all sorts of belief systems that have shifted or changed. And a lot of it is interpretation. So I'm not telling you that you can't interpret scripture and that there's one way. What I'm saying to you is that we can't just take one person's word for it or even a denomination's word for it. We must be people who are willing to be educated, to think critically and to be people of faith but who are willing to say God's word is truth. And how do I integrate that in my life, even when it's hard? And how do I find what it really means? And I'm not going to allow just someone's opinion or even like to just shift me. I have to do the work. And then if after that, I believe my, my, my belief system shifts a little bit because of a new understanding, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. But we can't be people who go, Oh, well, Pastor Jared said this, great. Oh, I believe that now, but there's no sense of like, there's no personal responsibility you've taken it in. So I know, again, like I said, it's kind of a nebulous concept here. This is more of a principle sermon than it is about a specific. And so I just want to encourage you that we need to be people to stay the course when it comes to our faith and not take centuries, millennia worth of, 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 of theology changed because of a legislation that was passed or whatever. We are not people of the United States. We are people, citizens of God's kingdom first. That is what scripture teaches. We are citizens of God's kingdom. And that supersedes every authority, every uh, law, every political move that our nation subscribes to. 
And the church in, in China is a great example of that. It is illegal to be a Christian in China. And yet, the Church of Jesus Christ is thriving and multiplying and rapidly because they're meeting in homes and underground churches. It's an example of where they understand their citizenship is not through the Communist Republic of China. Their citizenship first and their allegiance first is to Jesus Christ and his teachings. That's where we have to be, to stay the course when it's easier to take the detour. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for, um, for giving us a guide that doesn't stay away from hard topics. You know, I think your word is attractive, you know, like honey in the beginning, because it's, it's about love and it's about goodness. It's about peace. It's about forgiveness and mercy. And all of those things are real. And at the same time, there is truth that is penetrating, that is difficult, it's challenging, and there is expectation placed upon those who ascribe themselves to be followers of your way. God, it is hard, it is difficult to live in a society that has opinion, that values personal opinion and personal truth above all else. It is hard to be people who ascribe to absolute truth, to unmovable truth from God in a world where No one believes that there is such a thing. God, would you challenge us today to be people who make your word the authority? Make us people who will will study, who will do the hard work of discernment. God, would you give us faith for what we read and what we hear, but at the same time, give us critically thinking minds to ask questions, to question when we see things that don't seem right or don't feel right, and to do the hard work of asking those questions of each other, of those in charge and authority of us, our spiritual leaders, and also in our society, God. Let us be people who are like that with the news that we see on Facebook or on CNN or on Fox News or wherever we get our news from. Let us be people who go to the to right sources. Let us be people who fact check. Let us be people who ask questions when things don't seem right. And above all, be people who will rise up and stand for truth even when the waves of erosion are, are, are eroding at the truth, God. I pray that this nebulous concept would become very specific in our hearts about areas of our lives that maybe this challenges and goes up against. God, let us be people of truth, not people of, um, of society and culture. We love you. We thank you for your word. And uh, just ask you'll uh, just be with us as we go about our day and as we have a Memorial Day holiday and we're spending time with people. Um, I pray that we would be safe, that we would have fun, have a good time with whatever it is that we are doing. Uh, Let us be wise in all the decisions we make. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you call Encounter Church Home or if you'd like to partner with us to support the work that God is doing here, you can take advantage of our online giving option. Just go to EncounterGiving.com. Also, stay up to date with us throughout the week Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EncounterPGH. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.